From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The search is on for a new federal chief information security officer. Grant Schneider is leaving the Office of Management and Budget to join the cyber practice at Venable. Federal News Network reports Schneider will leave OMB at the end of this month. Laura Stanton's the new leader of the information technology category at the General Services Administration. She takes over for Bill Zielinski. FedScoop reports she's been acting assistant commissioner in the Office of the Information Technology category since the beginning of June. The Office of Personnel Management has a new principal deputy chief information officer. Guy Cavallo will leave the Small Business Administration to go to OPM. Federal News Network reports Cavallo was at SBA for more than three years. The increase in telework during the coronavirus pandemic has meant added cyber risk for agencies. Addressing surprise events like the virus is one of the biggest challenges facing cybersecurity experts today. Bob Bigman's founder of 2B Secure, former chief information security officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, Bob, welcome back. What are the cyber challenges that this extended telework may cause, not just for agencies, but for the contractors that serve the federal government? Thank you, Francis. So there, there are there are many. Uh, I think primary among them is the fact that we now have someone connecting to the corporate network, uh, the government network, the contractor network, uh, usually from uh, their home or provided provision PC from the company or government agency, over uh, the local uh, uh, ISP. Right. So we're now connecting instead of connecting directly into the corporate network. You know, we're going over a, um, a routed Wi-Fi connection, which from a cybersecurity perspective was never designed uh, to, be, to have the same security levels of uh, corporate and enterprise networks. And uh, there, there are uh, lots of hacks now going on uh, against routers and uh, these laptop PCs. Short of building an entire remote work network for the entire federal government to use, which sounds on its face really impractical and terribly expensive, what do we do to build a remote work environment that's secure for 2022 or 2025 when, I mean, it, it's, agencies now are starting to talk like things will never be the same as they were in February again, Bob. Yeah, I have a client who just basically said, uh, you're not coming back into the office till late uh, 2021. Um, so you're going to be working from home. Uh, and using your home units, your home PCs, your home networks. Uh, it's a conundrum in the sense that, uh, you know, people want to have ease of use and be able to manage their devices themselves and be able to just turn it on, plug it in and let it go. But that's the antithesis of being able to secure and use uh, credible devices. The problem is right now, uh, we don't have, you know, the technology available that you can buy, um, you know, from Verizon or from wherever, that gives you that same level of security. But, so the best thing we do now, and, I, and I've now done this multiple times, is provide them with, you know, what are the best things you can do to secure your uh, home connection? Um, what, we, what we really need is some uh, venturing uh, capital to, to develop some type of capability that gives you high, you know, high security type uh, router devices, right? And allow you to secure them to the same degree uh, that we secure uh, direct connections in our, our corporate environments. So the reason this is amusing to me, amusing is maybe not the right word, 
what I take away from this, Bob, is that when I got into this space covering the federal government 14, 15 years ago, the focus then was on digging a moat around your devices and making sure the bad guys never got in. Then we transitioned to this idea that that's silly and we can never do that. We can't secure the devices. We have to secure the data in at rest and in transit. Sounds like we're going back to the beginning again, aren't we? Yeah, we absolutely are. Uh, and it's always about the devices, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, speaking from uh, the, the Red Hat side of the, uh, it, if I can get and own your device, you know, you're going to decrypt the data some sometime to be able to see it and manipulate it on your on your computer. So it is about the devices. And yes, we did, in fact, uh, kind of forget about that part of the, uh, I think what we really forgot about, frankly, was not just the devices themselves, but the ability of how to securely connect over networks. Um, you know, there's some promise with this nature, with the nature of what they call SDN, software defined networking, that allow us to build, you know, connections over uh, commercial networks using using enterprise grade software. That, that you know, that hasn't showed itself yet to be to be you know commercially adoptable and acceptable. Uh, but yeah, you are right. Uh, we we did in fact forget uh, the devices and most importantly the the network. Do the tools, the cyber tools and practices that we were talking about in February and March still apply? Continuous uh, diagnostics and mitigation and, and all those kinds of things. And I'm not talking about the, the, um, the actual technology. I'm talking about the worldview, the philosophy of cybersecurity. Does that stuff all still apply? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it applies even more dramatically today uh, when you have people working in and connecting from less secure uh, environments. Uh, you know, we haven't yet really, you know, adopted or thought through how we want to, from a programmatic way, uh, set policies and set, you know, certain conditions on how and where and when you can connect into corporate networks, into enterprise networks, you know, from home units. It, it's still agency by agency, organization by organization, and kind of, well, what do you think, what do you think uh, approach. Uh, not, not much thought leadership in this area right now. And that's scary. Uh, what would fix that? What fills that vacuum in your view? Yeah, I, I think you need, you know, uh, government for, for the unclassified environment and the uh, civilian side, I think you need very specific guidance and direction to be given out for homework, uh, not just suggestions and recommendations. You need very specific configuration settings, very specific uh, use considerations very consider you know very determined uh, data access considerations you know I, you know from my perspective you you can't today work at home off your home network like you really can securely off of an enterprise network that that's just you know that's a factual statement but we want but we don't say that you know we basically you know say well you can you know try to do your best and you know use controls no, we, we have to give very specific direction here, and that, that's what's missing. We have about 30 seconds left. Do you remember the federal desktop core configuration, and is it time for maybe something similar in the cyber realm where everybody has very specific direction down to the settings of how stuff on their machine should be? Well, I can name you know, two countries that work from home that do exactly what you just said that uh, as a result of the pandemic, they have given their government employees very specific direction, and by the way, have set those configuration settings on their home PC units. Now, you know, we might get a little bit upset in the US when, if, for that to happen, but you know, if that was a condition of employment, we would be able to continue working from home, I, I think it would be acceptable. So the answer is uh, yes. Bob Bigman, thanks as always, great to see you. Sure, thank you.
Up next, the keys to artificial intelligence in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the lessons learned from industry and the pitfalls your agency should avoid. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Department of Energy has a new consortium that will work to help the agency incorporate artificial intelligence into national disaster response efforts. Agencies across government are working to use the new technology to help facilitate processes and allow employees to focus on high-value work. Mallory Barg-Bullman is Research Director of Finance Process Excellence at Gartner. Mallory, it's good to see you again. What are we learning from the private sector about using AI for all kinds of different responses to emergencies? Sure. Thanks, Francis. So as, as you said, the opportunity from AI is tremendous for government. We have tons of repeatable processes that are subject to human error. There's great opportunity there. But what Gartner found from a survey of 120 finance leaders was the biggest barrier for AI adoption was fear of the unknown. This is certainly relatable in the government. We want to make sure trust in government stays high. And so what they really found, what, what leaders found, was that making sure that there's transparency into the decisions that AI makes. You can use this through AI explainable software, but also transparency in the process. You know, companies were finding that when they included stakeholders in the decisions to use AI, it really made a difference in the long run. What does that mean in a public sector setting? Transparency to whom? Not just to the decision makers in the room, I suppose, but decision makers to the customer, or uh, uh, transparency to the customers and transparency to the taxpayers important also, I would imagine. That's exactly right. And, you know, further, as you know, I started my career at GAO. And so you want to make sure also you have auditability for federal decisions. And when you have transparency in how the decisions were made, why the decisions were made, and really a paper trail. You have clear auditability of AI. You also do have accountability to, trans to the taxpayers as well as to the Congress and the agency leadership. One of the things that I haven't talked a lot about with folks who are implementing artificial intelligence is that point that you just made about the fact that it's auditable. What does that look like? And does that, do you audit AI and the processes that you use it for any differently than you'd audit financial records or anything else? You know, I think it comes down to a couple different things. One is making sure that there is a clear paper trail of decisions that are made and clear visibility into the data that are being used for those decisions. The last piece I would say is to recognize that AI at its core is also a people issue. When companies, just like the government, are thinking about using AI or robotics, you want to make sure that you have people in place who are responsible for managing and supervising those decisions. You want some human accountability into the decisions that are being made. And so HR, the people leadership really needs to be part of these decisions. They're not just technological decisions. All right, you used another phrase a moment ago that I want to ask you about, and that is the term repeatable processes. And it strikes me you're laying the groundwork there to introduce um, robotic process automation into the artificial intelligence discussion. What's the integration look like and what's the private sector learning from that integration process, Mallory? 
Yeah, so robotics are being used throughout the private sector. They're not being used as frequently as we might imagine, though, at this point. And I think one of the reasons that Gartner is seeing is robotics are a case where it's better to go slow to go fast. Uh, we saw with one processing company, it's a 10,000 person company based in the US, and they really wanted to make sure that they were using RPA. What they really needed to do was start with a couple discrete processes. These are processes that happen all the time, that are repeatable, that are subject to human error. So there's great cost savings of doing it. And using that as a way to demonstrate the value and really test the usability of robotics, you don't need to automate a whole end-to-end -end process from the start. You want to make sure that you start small and then that'll help you go, go fast in the long run. Uh, about 30 seconds left, Mallory. That's exactly what agencies in government are doing with RPA so far. And at what point, though, do you scale something like that? Sure, I think it depends. It depends on what the goal is. If the goal is really, as we started uh, to talk about, moving staff from low value to high value work, you need to know what that breaking point is within the agency. You want to involve human capital leadership and make sure that there's a clear vision of what is that low value work that can be automated and can be strategically, uh, you know, uh, using tech used technology. Mallory, thanks very much. It's great to have you on as always. Thanks very much, Francis. Coming next, new options for taking your money out of your TSP account. Straight ahead on Government Matters, checking your choices to get the retirement you want. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be back in a moment. Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board will change restrictions on life expectancy-based withdrawals in the Thrift Savings Plan. Starting next year, eligible participants can get payments based on life expectancy whether or not they've gotten installment payments before. Greg Klingler is Director of Gibo Wealth Management. Greg, welcome back. It's good to have you on. That's a mouthful. What is a life expectancy-based installment payment? So really simple, it's a, it's a calculation that the TSP does that theoretically will allow you to take out money for the rest of your life um, based on actuarial tables. Um, it is not an annuity, so your money could in fact run out, but it is there in order to basically prevent people from spending their money too quickly in retirement and running out before they pass away. So the difference then between it and an annuity is that you buy an annuity and the annuity pays you once you've bought that product the annuity pays you every year until you pass, regardless of, you don't run out of money because you've purchased this product. Am I, is, is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So an annuity right now, um, with interest rates at historic lows, um, it is a bit of an issue because the amount that you're gonna get for the rest of your life is based on today's interest rate, which is again, the lowest that we've seen in almost ever. Um, the, uh, the life expectancy calculation, it gives you complete access to your money still you can spend it over the course of your lifetime, but it, there is no guarantee if you have a very long life, whereas an annuity is gonna pay you if you die at age 80 or if you die at age 120. The risk is on the insurance company. 
I'm aiming for 120 if I have anything to do with it, but I understand that not everybody's going to be able to make that. What's different about what the TSP is going to do, and how should someone who's thinking about these different options decide which one might make the most sense for them? Okay, so this change goes along with the trend that we've seen in the TSP over the last two years with the implementation of the TSP Modernization Act. The TSP wants to be more competitive from an administrative standpoint with what they consider to be their competitors, IRAs, um, old 401ks, things like that. Um, this is just another step in that direction. Um, and this is primarily a result of the CARES Act. So we have this little um, virus going around called COVID-19 and it's caused a, a dramatic um, impact on the entire world from, the econo from an economic standpoint. Um, and federal governments, state governments, they've jumped in with both feet one of the things that they've done is the CARES Act. And one of the stipulations of the CARES Act is to stop required minimum distributions, suspend them for 2020. Under the old law, the calculation that they did, once you started these systematic withdrawals, you could stop them, but then you could never start systematic withdrawals again. The change that the TSP made is they said now in 2021, if you stop them in the past, you could start them up again, effectively giving people the ability to suspend what many people use this calculation for, required minimum distributions, suspend them for 2020. What should someone think about? What are the factors that someone should consider to decide whether this is right for them or whether they should consider doing what they're already doing? Well, the first thing is for any, any of your viewers who started these um, distributions from their TSP before age 55, there could be some tax consequences if you're still under the age of 59 and a half or you've been taking um, requirement or excuse me, distributions for at least five years. If you hesitate or suspend those, there could be tax consequences. So that's the first thing that you should be aware of. Um, the second thing is from a financial advisor standpoint, this provides additional flexibility. We can start withdrawals. And let's say you wait to take Social Security, for instance, then Social Security can cover a lot of your expenses. Then as your health expenses go up, you can start withdrawals up again. Flexibility is very, very important from a financial planning standpoint, and this provides additional flexibility. Are there other flexibilities that your clients maybe are saying they wish they had in the TSP, but they don't now, and, and that's causing them to take money out of the TSP when they can and put it other places, either while they're still in government or in retirement? Um, so from a from an administrative standpoint, they've really done a great job. The, the changes directly affecting uh, affecting the TSP by the TSP Modernization Act really created a lot of scenarios where now people are no longer limited with the withdrawals that they want. This was kind of the final block in the wall that allows people to now stop their systematic contributions based on life expectancy calculations and then restart them at, the late, at a later date. Um, you can't do that in 2020, but you can do that in 2021. Now, the only limitations that we're seeing now from a TSP standpoint is the five investments. Um, it's very difficult to be completely um, diversified with five index-based investments. So that's, that's what we're seeing now. The simplification of the TSP is to some people the beauty of it. And as you say, there's not a lot about regarding what people can do among five funds. What are you seeing, what kinds of decisions are you seeing people make as a result of what's happening with the virus, the turmoil in the markets, uh, and so on uh, because of the coronavirus, Greg? 
Um, so as I'm sure you know, this has been a bit of a wild ride. Um, we saw the market drop, um, hit, or excuse me, hit its high right, right around February 18th, depending on uh, which index you're looking at. And we saw it drop in some cases between 30 and 35%, again, depending on which index you're looking at by March 23rd. Today, we're looking at almost all-time highs. The S&P 500 is butting against its, its, uh, its peak ever. And the, effectively, the C fund is a representation of the S&P 500. The S fund is coming very close to all-time highs, and the I fund's about 5% off its all-time high. So what we're seeing is a lot of people who had, took on too much risk going into this crash and then were hesitant to reevaluate their portfolios for a risk tolerance perspective. Um, they were waiting for their money to come back. And our, um, our communication to those people is okay, the market has come back. Now's the time to let's reevaluate your investments. Let's see where your investment's at. Let's look at your risk tolerance and make sure you're set for the future going forward. Um, we're in this weird situation where the economy, it's struggling. We still had $1.1 million job claims today, um, unemployment claims. Um, yet the financial markets are doing as good as they ever have been. We're looking at, at historic um, contractions on the GDP, but the financial markets, Q2 was the best quarter in the last 100 years for the S&P 500. So how do those two things to go together? It's because investors are assuming that all these good things are going to happen. Everything's going to get back to normal. There's going to be a um, basically a cure for the, the virus. Everything's going to open up. If something like that doesn't happen, we're going to see downward pressure on the markets. And we may see a W a secondary correction like we saw in 2001 and 2008. Um, time will tell what will happen in 2020, but I would say that there's probably more pressure on the downside than on the upside right now. So now's the time to be prudent. Now's the time to ensure your investments are properly diversified. Greg, thanks very much as always. Terrific insight. It's my pleasure. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.